Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Second Self, the podcast about the self we inherit and the one we create. So today's guest is Emma Dabry. Um, she is an academic broadcaster and author of Don't Touch My Hair, and more recently, um, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition. Hi, Emma. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm grand. Thanks. Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. It is weird that we're doing this via this format and we live in the same city, but it's just a testament, I guess, to the to the year everyone's had. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, it's, it's weird that we're in the same city. I'm used to yeah doing these with people and you know they're on the other side of the world and like in different time zones and stuff and um there's no there's no difference like it's really bizarre it's collapsed mm-hmm. um kind of distance and I don't know it's yeah it's all quite surreal and boundaries also I find like 11 p.m work emails and stuff are yeah. <laughs> increasingly more common than yeah. they were <laughs> I can barely distinguish like between the days so <laughs> I think that's a pretty common that's a pretty common ailment lately. Hopefully it'll be remedied. But um so I read the book over the weekend and I really enjoyed it and found it really interesting. I have it here in front of me. Um and there were there were several things in it that kind of felt a bit like a drink to a thirsty person. Oh great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh particularly, you know, when you when you kind of talked about the kind of uh the attitudes that we hold around allyship and the um, the ideas that we take for granted around allyship. Um, it's something I've always been pretty uncomfortable with because I find it sort of um, like a sort of patronizing antibiosis on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, given that you've kind of um, written this book that is a really interesting synthesis of all of the conversation that's going on right now, kind of on every side about, about race and class and gender, um, how did you get here? Uh, because obviously the, the, these sorts of ideas take years to formulate. So where did you start and how did you end up here? Yeah, um, so <clears throat> the anti-racist kind of discourse as it currently exists and yeah, as it exists, 
seems located in a different tradition in many ways and a different set of literature um, or a different set of objectives and aims than the um, kind of body of knowledge that I engaged with when I started to, you know, explore um, black consciousness, um, ideas about liberation and, and, and racialization. Um, so I did a, I was, I was an avid reader of, um, history and, and black literature, I guess, from like a young age. And then, um, when I went to university, I moved from Dublin to London to go to what was then called the school of Oriental and African studies to study African studies. So this was like in the late nineties and a lot of the literature was from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But a lot of it was the, um, you know, the literature that had been produced through the independence movements um, that had swept across uh, Africa, mostly in the 1960s. Um, And a lot of it was, it it was like post-colonial theory, Mm -hmm. um, which was focused on liberation. And I actually think there's quite a big distinction between kind of liberation and and anti-racism a lot of the thinkers that I was engaging with um I, I'm not sure if I just said Franz Fanon but somebody like Franz Fanon um like post-colonial theorist who's um a lot of their um I think this this is in the period where there is a big distinction between kind of capitalism and um kind of socialism and I guess, Marxism. And a lot of the people who were organizing and who are revolutionaries and who are looking for independence in these colonized countries are grounded in like Marxist theory and see the countries as when they gain independence to distinguish themselves from their colonial past, imagine the countries as being, you know, socialist, socialist countries. So I guess that kind of political orientation was always like bubbling away in a lot of this, in in a lot of that literature. It was, it was very, much like about collective liberation and freedom rather than um kind of notions of individual um I guess individual success that is very definitive or individual advancement that it seems far more defining of our current you know very neoliberal influencer online driven conversations about about anti-racism and I would also say um so my PhD um, looks at the construction of racial categories. So I actually look at, pr- rather than just thinking about people's skin color, I'm looking at processes of racialization, how race is constructed, why the racial categories that we use to define ourselves and others, um, why they were created and the work that they, that they purport to do, you know, that the, the work that they serve. I feel a lot of that theory, a lot of those uh, that knowledge about issues of racialization, is missing from the current conversation, the current anti-racist 
conversation. So we have some terms that come from academia um, that abound and have kind of just become buzzwords, uh, although they often come from a different strand of academia to um, to the one where kind of my my work is is located. I will also say as well that um, I don't. Um, so in my PhD, I don't really look at. Um, what's it called? Critical, criti critical race theory isn't my grounding, um, framework. I actually, um, root my, um, root, root my work in a materialist analysis. So we have concepts that have become almost, that come from academia on, on some level, but have just kind of become almost empty buzzwords. But I feel even though there's this presence of or, or kind of veneer maybe of academia sometimes and a lot of people who are against the current anti-racist movement will say oh you know this is just kind of university campus academia um it's not like it's 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 not um intelligible to anybody who hasn't like studied all of this I would actually counter that by saying most of it isn't rooted in academia it's um like I said kind of phrases and and and, and concepts that have become untethered from the um intellectual environments in which they were in which they were generated which are often you know self-reflexive and um critical in ways that a lot of these this is very different to a way the way in which a lot of these concepts are being used in the current anti-racist discourse is, is that though is that kind of not what always happens when you have sort of an academic lexicon that is designed to have a pragmatic um you know application in the world it, it filters down substance often gets kind of diluted or lost and you're left with this vocabulary that you find thrown around you know by people who kind of generally don't have a sense of the context or the origin of what they're saying maybe um but the words become popularized and then obviously the meanings change from their original intended meaning often yeah and in this moment even like become weaponized to have kind of to be used in ways that are very <laughs> at odds with uh, why these kind of uh why these uh ideas were generated i think what you're saying is um characteristic of now but a lot of um what i look at and what white people can do next is the organizing of earlier earlier movements and um even with that earlier, um, I can't remember what wave, what wave of feminism are we on now? Fourth wave? I think four. Are we in four? I think we're in four. <laughs> so third wave feminism, you know, it has um, these consciousness raising sessions that are really integral to the organizing. So they have um, a grappling with theory um, and a rootedness in, in, in theory, but an understanding that not everybody is going to have, is going to have, been able to engage with those texts for whatever reason reasons so people would meet um offline obviously the digital world wasn't uh kind of in existence then but people would meet um in the phys the physical material world and um go over that theory in a conscious raising session to share the knowledge with people that hadn't read the books so that um there was a good 
understanding amongst the, the people that, that, that were organizing. So there was the idea that those that did have the knowledge shared it, um, shared it with others. And then with the Black Panthers as well, what was key to their organizing was new members of the Black Panthers had to go through, I think it's a six weeks um, uh, course um, to give them a grounding in um, a political education. So before they even become members they have engaged with this theoretical framework so that, you know, once they're members, they're not having these kind of like 101 conversations or coming with ideas that um, kind of prevent the more generative conversations that can happen when everybody's up to speed. And I always think that's a really powerful example because that study and reading session was not with people that had, you know, necessarily educational or economic privilege. Um, it's not people that were like doing PhDs necessarily. It's just like ordinary, like working class black Americans. Um, so this idea that you sometimes see online that anybody dealing with theory is necessarily like an elitist is one that I um, robustly, you know, resist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you are, obviously you talk a lot in the book about kind of your influences and you draw on a lot of thinkers, um, in kind of, in, in making the points that you make in the book. But, um, I'm interested in kind of who has been fundamental to, uh, the, uh, I mean, am I correct in sort of sensing a certain change in your approach in the last few years? I just, I feel like they're just based on things you say on social media and kind of interview stuff. And obviously reading this book, there's, there seems to be a kind of evolution there in your approach to these sorts of issues. I'm just curious about kind of where that's come from, whether it's prompted by just the kind of unpleasant direction everything seems to have gone in. <laughs> Does it come out of academic scholarship? Um, what's the origin of it? And is it there? I should, it was a more important question. Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, that's something that should exist for everyone, you know, that we shouldn't yeah. be wedded to permanent, um, permanent positions. And like, that's something like Foucault talks about, um, like an, an, a number of interviews and writings I've heard him like talking about, um, you know, don't kind of feel that you've got a sense of him because you read one thing that he said, he might be saying something like, very different down the line. I, I'm massively paraphrasing, but it's like to, to, <laughs> to, to that effect. Um, there's actually some really cool quotes that from him, but I can't, uh, I, I can't reproduce them verbatim, sadly. Um, so I would say like my underlying principles actually remain the same, which is, um, like this, like a big resistance to, to inequality, and the the belief like I, I actually I hate injustice okay that's something that really from a young age like injustice has just really like upset me and made me feel um like it's something I need to like be like vocally um resisting resisting um but I feel like the where I see the injustice changes you know, it, it's not, it's not always located in exactly the same place. Um, I would say my ideas about processes of racialization are greatly in like, uh, enhanced through like doing a PhD, looking at 
how how race is constructed you know once yeah. you go into the nuts and bolts of processes of racialization it's it becomes impossible to be invested in essentialized notions of race like we have this idea that um from sociology um that has kind of been mainstreamed that race is a social construct but while that's kind of like a mantra that's repeated it's like people don't fully understand that and many people resisted and, and and rejected. And I think even when I first started my PhD, I was aware of all the theoretical discussions that that um reject essentialist notions of race. And um I was aware that race was a social construct. Like I knew it on an intellectual level, but I still hadn't really like, you know, internalized it. And I I, I think the more the more you study and the more you um become immersed in um in these ideas about the constructed nature of reality that applies to you know everything far far beyond race it's just difficult to hold really binary or essentialized positions mhm i mean uh, that sounds so inherently sensible but i'm also just conscious that i guess for someone in your public position and for someone you know with your with your status we do live in an incredibly um, polarized climate, especially where everything is flattened to one dimension online. Uh, I, you're, you're sort of at higher risk of, you know, for want of a better phrase, taking a lot of shit for talking about this stuff. Um, so doing so doesn't come without a cost. So why have you chosen to risk the cost? <laughs> I actually love that question. Um, so when I was... Um, when I was little and um, I was at a point where most things I heard about black people or about blackness from the wider society were, were negative and I was very outspoken in resisting that, that came at a cost, you know. Um, it made my life quite difficult in that it ensured that I was in confrontational situations regularly with people my age and also with adults, with family members, it, it, it was, it, 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 it wasn't easy. As I got older and, you know, more laterally when social justice issues have come to the mainstream and then gone beyond that have actually become, you know, in, in many ways commodified, I started getting to a position where everybody was talking about this stuff and not only was it becoming easier to talk about it oh, there's still there's still a backlash you know from from kind of racists but there wouldn't be like a backlash from ordinary people in the way there would have been when I was younger and th these conversations just weren't weren't being had and were far more taboo and even quite ordinary people would be quite hostile and I'm so I'm saying even people that weren't kind of committed racists would be quite um defensive and hostile about these conversations in a way that I've seen, um, I've, I've seen a change occur. It started to become easier to talk about race. And there's even kind of expectation that people talk about not just race, but also gender class a lot less class seems to have is, is, is kind of, um, people kind of will say class, but there's not cl class analysis actually seems to be like absent from many of these conversations as does any kind of discussion around capitalism but again that's something I talk about a lot in the book but um race gender sexuality um 
kind of yeah, an expectation that um, people will, will 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 talk about the, these things. And then I was just like, oh, this is weird. I'm, I was used to being kind of like at odds <laughs> with society, and then um, and then I wasn't, which should be great. But I noticed I was very aware of as it became more mainstream and became more commodified the way it was being framed and the way it was being approached and understood, I felt like actually really uncomfortable with. And I was just like, no, this isn't going to solve the issues that we have. This is like, this is, feels like a kind of a weird trap or something. And increasingly I started to feel that my thinking was again at odds or out of step, you know, with the, with the mainstream, which is, um, Something I'm very, I'm actually used to feeling, you know. So with the book I've written, I've, I've just written What White People Can Do Next. I felt nervous writing it because I'm aware that um, I challenge certain shibboleths and sacred cows of the current moment. But I kind of have a grounding in challenging things. So I did feel nervous, but I felt actually a sense of responsibility to express my discomfort with many things. I I also feel like issues that I care deeply about, I see being captured and distorted in ways that are not going to bring about the, 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 the change people claim to want to see. So I feel like the, the the discourse has to be liberated actually. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I, I, I completely agree in that respect. And I think you also make a very, um, a very honest point, but kind of maybe a discomforting one for some people, which is that racialized white people uh, have to set aside, you know, um, feelings of guilt and sort of impulses toward allyship and and focus more on, uh, you know, a kind of an, an egalitarian approach, which is which is coalition, because obviously allyship is kind of there's a sort of um, reaching down to pull someone up. In, in that action. And, and that's a presupposition that the, the person you're reaching to help is down, is under you, which is inherently wrong. But there's obviously, I think there's a lot of kind of academic investment and, and like public intellectual and very online people investment in that narrative um, on the left as well as, as not on the left. Um, and, you know, by you sort of, you know, chucking a mine in there and kind of blowing it all to crap, you're alienating yourself from the people who formerly may have agreed with you as well as the people who, you know, overtly won't like you regardless of what you say, mm-hmm. which is brave. <laughs> yeah. I see myself as kind of a dissident, like thinker, y- you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of used to that. Um, and I, I actually think there, there, there need to be people that aren't just kind of towing the party line and they're pushing, I want to say forward, but then I also like, don't want to like um, reproduce linearity <laughs> in thinking, but are pushing things some so, so, kind of in the direction that, that that they need to go when they become a little bit stultified. And I've been amazed by the outpourings of um, the book's been out like a week, just over a week, and I have had so many people of all different backgrounds. Like I, 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 the the word diverse annoys me because of the way it's currently used. But I mean, genuinely diverse in terms of just so many different types of people have con- have contacted me and reached out to me and just been like, 
<laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying this, you know. Um, so I feel a lot of people have been have felt deeply uncomfortable and actually like put off by a lot of the current current discourse. I also feel like with when we say the left, I feel like often it's more liberal thinking that we're talking about than actual like I draw on a lot of um, thinkers in the black radical tradition, which I guess would be like the far left. And I think there's a big distinction between their more radical and expansive visions than the liberal humanism of, a, you know, like a, a liberal. Um, but we off, we also call, we also call the liberal, the left as well. So I think it's actually a lot of liberal discourse. So I think it's more the right and liberal discourse. So the current anti-racist narrative, I would say, is, you know, is, is grounded in kind of like liberal humanism. And again, when you read the Black Panthers, somebody like um, Huey Newton, who's one of the co-founders um, of the Black Panthers, like he is really willing to work with white people. And actually his more... Um, his vision that is inclusive kind of of white radicals um, and all exploited people. It's not like everybody in the party is on board with that. Like when he moves more in that direction, it actually causes like a lot of um, upheaval in the party and people going, going in different directions. But Huey Newton very much like distinguishes between white radicals and white liberals, you know? And again, James Baldwin, who I draw on a lot, is also like very critical of white liberals. And one of the things that really frustrates me in, I'm not even getting into the right, the right wing. Um, one of the things that really frustrates me is this like collapsing of white people just into this homogenized group. Like, I mean, whiteness was invented. At, it's a generic term to erase the distinctions that exist, the differences that exist amongst people racialized as white when we reproduce that all white people are the same narrative, we're doing the work of whiteness for it, you know? Um, and this idea that somebody is inherently, so yeah, in the movements of the past, there's a distinction between like white people, even just based on what their kind of political um, leaning is between a radical and a liberal, you know, that's, that's a huge distinction. Um, and also this idea that um, I see this idea, you know, that somebody is inherently radical just because of their racialized position and is inherently not radical because of their racialized position. And I'm like, that is so dangerous, you know, like a black capitalist is not a radical, whereas take James Connolly is a radical, you know, like it's it's the idea that somebody's um, politics is determined by their racialized position is just deeply dangerous. And I don't understand why people like reproduce that idea. Yeah. I hear you saying, I mean, I think when it comes to the kind of like the, the construction within the modern left, I completely agree that that, um, I mean, I suppose it's not really bipartite because it's a scale and there are lots of people located in many locations along yeah, that scale. For real. But, but, but there is a, there is a kind of, I think one of the major sort of aspects of the current culture war is within the left itself is this idea that you have your kind of old fashioned radicals 
Um, and then you have your kind of new wave kind of Amazon leftists. But yeah, I think there's this idea that the radicals are still kind of going that we are the left. And then the Amazon leftists are like, no, no, it's moved on. Here we are, you know, and obviously those guys are very, very much um, focused on. I mean, you you have an interesting commentary in the book on on the word progress, and obviously that inflicts that has influence on the word progressive and and how we use it within the context of kind of like left wing movements and politics. But I guess I find it interesting that the modern left, whatever it is, the kind of impactful modern left that has a a, a strong political voice of power right now is very much interested in sprucing at the margins, because I guess that's what progress is, right? It's not burning everything down, it's fixing what we've got, it's making it better. But in the book, you talk a lot about theorists like Franz Fanon, who obviously, he wasn't a sprucing at the margins guy. He was a, we have to kill the French guy, that's how we fix it. <laughs> Burn it all down. You know, like violence is to some extent how you institute structural um, change in the world. So I guess when I read that, that section of the book for you when you were talking about kind of capitalism and, and structures of that nature. I was wondering where you fell on that, because obviously, in order to have kind of popular appeal, and as you say, to to impact ordinary people with kind of ideas that don't alienate them totally, yeah. you can't come in and go, we're burning everything down, you know, get come on, off we go. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, for real. <laughs> I'm not advocating burning anything down, <laughs> I know. for the record. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of get into that in, um, okay. So the, 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 there's two, there's, there's two things I'd like to say to that. So w to go back to the Black Panthers, you have the approach where they believe that the institutions, um, the institutions that exist are kind of morally bankrupt. So to be included into them is to just perpetuate moral bankruptcy. So they, are looking at pa building parallel institutions. And that's why, you know, they have these community, like they have, they have parallel institutions that they're, that they're working on trying to, trying to create. That's one approach. Then you also have, you know, a thinker like Fred Moten, who, who I draw on quite a lot in, in the book as well, who has written multiple books, but one I'm particularly inspired by is black planning and fugitive study. And, um, in that book, he talks about revolution will come, but it won't be in the way that it won't be in the way that you predict. It won't be like a masculinist surge or an armed rebellion, like the kind of revolution that we that we need now, you know. So I'm really interested in so at the end of the book, I start to talk about like other forms of like consciousness and um i have this proposition that while i reject the concept of racialized others being allies perhaps it's plants that are <laughs> perhaps it's plants that are our allies and um a reconfiguring of our relationship with um ecology and an understanding like basically the, the 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 framework of the world the framework of understanding reality that gives us these binaries um that is it is very present in the origins of race is very present in the origins of capitalism 
is the same framework, you know, that has interrupted our entanglement with the world around us. It's about, you know, just completely like reconceiving and reimagining what our entanglement with the world, with, with the world is. And, um, so white whiteness, not people racialized as white, but the system of whiteness, um, with its inherent relationship to capitalism and dominance and a binary understanding of the world and extraction. Um, it's about having a completely different kind of like articulation of what it is to be, to be in the world. And that's something that is like far more to do with like our consciousness. And these are ideas that I start to kind of introduce towards the end of the book. And that like, um, I mean, would and could possibly be a whole, a whole nother book. Um, but yeah, I'm very taken with that notion of Moton's that revolution will not necessarily be armed struggle or a masculinist surge in the way we have kind of thus far imagined it. You know, it could be many other things such as a shift in consciousness. There's a whole kind of school of thought that the radical civilizational shifts that that have happened in the past have been activated by cultures that have a completely different working relationships with like, you know, kind of plant technology. And we are not operating on that level. You know, we're up operating on a very, um, the level of a very problem solving consciousness, um, which reproduces a lot of the norms, um, that are the, the, the ones that have us where, where we are. So I, I, I feel like there needs to be this consciousness shift. I don't, know exactly how we go about doing that but that's what I'm interested in thinking about yeah I, I, I guess I kind of it made me think while I was reading the book of to an extent that shift in consciousness is definitely happening because people are having conversations like this one a lot more or at least a shift in consciousness but I feel like I mean ever the pessimist but I feel like <laughs> it's kind of going in a very gross direction. So for example, one of the things that I really loathe is woke capitalism. Um, <laughs> I don't mind capitalism. I take a different view from, from you on that, but but I, I don't like woke capitalism. And I think a really good example of it is the the recent thing with, you know, Lil Nas X and his Nike shoes. I don't know. So, oh, okay. Well, the, the rapper Lil Nas X, uh, he, he brought out this new song, um, which is like all of his songs, he's a marketing geni genius, a total earworm. You can't get it out of your head for two weeks after you hear it. But it is basically about the experience of, uh, it's inspired by his experience of being a young gay black man being told in the US that he's going to go to hell by Christians. So it I've seen the video. I just don't know the, Ni the Nike. Um, sure. Nike. So, so he... He uh, released um, a kind of bespoke Nike shoe. There's like 600 of them with an artist whose name I forget. I apologize for forgetting. Um, but they're basically inspired by the music video and they have kind of devil insignia on them and like a drop of human blood somewhere in them. It's all very interesting. But anyway, so he's been selling them for like, I don't know, $1,000 each. And Nike, have or Nike decided to sue him because he didn't get permission to do this. So I just find it really interesting that, for example... Nike will happily in 2017 release, you know, an LG, a pro LGBT shoe with a swoosh that's a rainbow and they will profit <laughs> from that. But he can sell his shoes, which are inspired by essentially the same sense of being othered and, and like normalizing his, his, uh, his identity as a gay man. And because he's profiting from it, but Nike isn't, they're going to sue him. Yeah. So where's the <laughs> logic? Like, 
you know, it, you're either in favor of this Nike or you're not. Like, which position is it? You, you're only woke when you make the money? Like, what is it? Yeah, well, obviously, like, they have <laughs> exploitative, um, deeply exploitative business practices. So we know no matter how um, right on, do you know, I can't even, I, I actually can't even use the word woke. You'll notice in my book, um, I, I don't use, I don't say call out. I don't say woke. I don't, I, I, I can't bear these phrase, these, these, these terms. Um, woke actually makes me feel sad because I, like it's, it's, it's origin is I'm here for what it initially and originally means. But obviously it has, like, like I say, these things all become like untethered from the environments that, 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 that generated them and just become unrecognizable, you know? Um, and there are certain, there are certain phrases that I hear now. This has actually helped me write the book. Cause I was like, there's certain phrases that I hear now that I almost shut down when I hear those phrases. I just feel like, I just don't feel myself shutting down. And I'm like, if that's happening to me, that's definitely happening to people that aren't even particularly interested in the first place, you know, for sure. <laughs> it's not an effective strategy. Um, but yeah, like, of course they have very exploitative business practices and models. And so even if they have a commercial or a campaign that, um, is using, uh, is, is tapping into commodified forms of activism around race, gender, sexuality. Um, it's just, it's just market marketing strategy. You know, we, we, we know that it hasn't affected, um, the business model, the system. And that's why one of the things I find this, 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 uh, current preoccupation with, um, representational politics, um, in the current anti-racist moment, conversation, discourse, um, you know, I'm seeing companies that, you know, have very, very exploitative business models and rather than be campaigning or calling out, <laughs> calling out that people <laughs> will call out the fact that they don't have a diverse enough advertising campaign. And I'm just like, Oh, that's, it's like people don't join the dots, you know? And I feel the overemphasis on represent on, on, on representation is, um, I don't know. It's, it's like trying to make these, um, exploitative, if, if these exploitative systems have a more diverse facade, well, that's just, it's giving them like the veneer of kind of wokeness for want of a better word when, um, when they're anything but. I think, I mean, that that's absolutely true, but there's also kind of a concerning on the kind of, on the individual part, on the consumer part as someone, you know, who wants a pair of shoes that advertises a political position or a t-shirt that you feel like has a virtuous message on it. There is something really weird about being sold virtue or activism for a price from a company that obviously doesn't care about any of that stuff. Um, yeah, it's fucking mental. We confuse that with actually being virtuous, or as you say, there's a big difference, as you say in the book, between saying something and actually doing something. <laughs> which we're great at doing or at saying stuff, but 
it's kind of like the that kind of aspect of buying our virtue is an articulation of we can say it without even having to open our mouths. We can just buy some and then we can shut up and do what we want. Yeah. And I think maybe doing something feels overwhelming, you know? It's like it's like, oh well, what what do I do? What can I do? Um whereas saying something has been made very easy for us with our devices. The demand is there that you say something. Silence is violence, remember? Um, if you do say something, there are potential rewards in in in, in saying something. Um ooh. I'd love to read a quote on that, actually. Um, I need to just actually earmark this page because I, I always want to read this quote and then I can never find it. Um, I'm afraid my copy is covered in covered in writing and dog ears. And no respect for books. <laughs> you know what? I, do, I feel a little upset when I see like um, pen on, on a book. I love pencil on a book. But when I see pen or a highlighter, I'm a bit like... <sighs> <laughs> if I'm desperate, like I might use pen or a highlighter, but like I'd have to be really desperate. I wasn't made particularly angry by the events of 2020 because in terms of racism, it was just business as usual. I had already been angry, had spent most of my life angry at racial injustice, at inequality, at the intentional impoverishment of Africa and the global South. But more laterally, angry also at the inconsistencies, contradictions and hypocrisies that seem to characterize so much online activism and perhaps the current model of activism itself more generally. Collective goals seem to have been replaced by visibility. Long gone, it seems, are the organized strikes of the black liberation movements of the 1960s. As George Lipsitz notes, there is little evidence of the parallel institutions that were built then, the freedom schools, the community banks, the community land trusts, the breakfast clubs, Where's the program, the consistent set of demands characterizing and unifying this current moment? Lipsitz continues, people will be seduced and bribed by thinking that if they're visible, their politics are viable. That's it. People will be seduced and bribed by thinking that if they're visible, their politics are viable. That as long as they live in an, as they live in an economy of prestige, that the image of them acts as a simulacrum of reality. But he warns, Ethnic studies can do very well while ethnic people are doing very badly. And I actually would add ethnic influences, POC influences can do very well while POC influences are doing, POC people are doing very badly, you know? So yeah, there's this um, replacement of um, kind of material conditions with um, Rep- representation, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think uh, one of the concerning elements of that as well is that it kind of gives people, not only does it make it very easy to just sort of advertise something you neither understand nor believe in, but it doesn't create any incentive to actually pursue an understanding, you know, because y- you talk about that in the book too, that, you know, the importance of of knowledge, of knowledge generation and of um having a sense of where your ideas come from and, you know, who you should read to improve them. And and you suggest reading in the book. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the idea that you can just buy a pair of shoes and that's that is, um, is just wildly depressing. Shop yourselves free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, I was curious actually, um, 
while you were talking earlier, um, I think when you said that you had a sense that you were kind of going against the mainstream uh, again in a way that you felt that you had when you were younger. Um, I think to an extent that's that's prob- that's right. Like there is, as you say, like some of the radical stuff in the book is probably not, you know, what your average bus driver is thinking about. Maybe it is, but um, but I, I kind of get the strong sense that one of the things that's so um, friction-inducing about our culture right now is that there is this sort of like, I don't know, um, you know, media and academic and internet elite that dictate they say the mainstream is X, but I think your view is actually much more compatible with most people just walking around the world, living their lives. Um, but I think there's an enormous thirst to see it written down and to hear someone say it because it's not being said really. Um, yeah, <laughs> I feel like the stuff that is being said is, um, you know, it's just not connecting with most people. Mm-hmm. And if it was connecting with people, we'd see the changes in society that we're not seeing, you know? Um, and I actually just think we cannot continue to push a narrative that has no evidence of success, you know, um, that is in many ways, I think, antithetical to achieving the aims it purports to have. So I felt like the book was kind of, you know, like an, an intervention. Um, and I've had a lot of people say to me that, um, again, in the short period it's been out, just say, you know, they often feel quite defensive when they talk, when they're involved in this kind of discourse, because they feel they're being like just personally attacked or called out. And that this actually, the book has helped them to feel more empathetic um, and feel more involved and invested in the conversation, you know, you can't demand somebody be empathetic, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you have to, an environment has to exist whereby that's generated. And again, that's an an example that I found really powerful again from the Black Panthers was like Fred Hampton, the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers, who was killed when he was 21, which I find just remarkable that he was only like kind of 19, 20 when he's saying and doing all of this stuff. Like that, that is absolutely mind boggling to me. But he creates this um, coalition that he calls the Rainbow Coalition. And it's um, comprised of Black Panthers, um, the Young Lords, who are a Port- Puerto Rican gang, and then the the Young Patriots, who are Southern, white, working class, um, gang group, um, and th- they have the 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 Confederate flag as their as their symbol, and obviously, like the Confederate flag is a despicable symbol of the slave owning South. Um, you know, that's actually the symbol they use. Hampton says, you know, if we can, um, so Hampton identifies the fact that even though the young Patriots don't experience racism as poor working class white people. Um, they do experience police brutality and they do experience like deprivation, extreme deprivation as a result of the excesses of capitalism. So he's just like, if we all work together because we have these common interests, this is far more powerful than if we are atomized and we also see ourselves as enemies that actually plays into the hands of power you know they have this symbol the confederate flag 
and Hampton, I was talking to somebody and they about that bit in the book and she was saying, yeah, I think if the Black Panthers had demanded the type of allyship that one sees demanded today, they wouldn't have been perceived as such a threat to the, to the status quo, you know? So Hampton says, you know, with the flag, we'll just work with, if we can use the flag, you know, in a way that actually furthers our aims, fuck it. And then the young patriots themselves, they renounced the flag out of respect for Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers, not because they were chastised into doing doing so, or there was like a a, a claim of toxicity or a, an online pylon, or because they were being held accountable, but because they actually had a profound respect for this man and for this movement. And that is so much more powerful than thinking that you can chastise people or shame people into renouncing things that they're, that they, that they are deeply invested in. Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, I mean, that, that aspect of the book is just so refreshing to read that kind of sense of, you know, I think there's a lot of denial in general that there is a kind of a an environment of kind of shame and and cancellation and to an ex- to an extent coercion you know if you if you say or you do the wrong thing and there is no route back from that for people so um what you're talking about offers a you know it, it offers a route forward but it also offers a route back but so i'm just i'm i'm interested about you know we've all been in those positions even with just like small life stuff where you kind of get this sense that you need to make a change you need to change what you think or you need to change something in your life and you live with that feeling for a while because you kind of hope it'll go away because you'd rather not change and you know there's a, a friction and a discomfort um, and you know it's going to make a mess because you're going to have to say things or do things that draw attention to the fact that you're not the same as you were before um can you talk a little bit about, I mean, in relation to the book or any other time, a time you've you've been there and what kind of helped you to take the step and make the change? Oh gosh, um, can I come back? Can I come back to that? I, I need to. Yeah. I need to think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it kind of sounds a bit like you know, you've you, from your background, the, what you talk about in the book, you've been sort of committed to that. Uh, to, as you say, kind of like battling against things as, as you encounter them, that perhaps it's something that you habitually do now, um, you know, make those changes and, and you don't have that meta narrative that a lot of us have in our heads. It's just like, mm, I better stay the same. I don't, I don't want to rock the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I feel like I'm not someone that has comfortably you know how a lot of people are in their surroundings and they just fit in and um because I really didn't have that for a long time I think I just you know sometimes when you're slightly on the margins like you're really assessing everything like in a way that maybe people who are less uh, people who like belong more maybe aren't I don't know like I, I, I want, I want to get, I want to give this a proper answer, but I feel like I need to unpack. <laughs> I need to unpack stuff. Don't, don't worry. It's, um, <laughs> actually, I was having a conversation recently with my, with my husband, who is what people characterize as mixed race. And he was explaining to me about the concept of home. Like when we lived together, um, in Ireland, he, 
he didn't feel any more or less at home than in the UK where he was born and, and grew up. And he was explaining this to me as someone who just has never felt that he fits mm-hmm. precisely mm-hmm. anywhere. And therefore it gives him a fluidity that is great. And it also gives him a kind of a melancholy detachment that is not great. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's very relatable, you know, Um I, I, I'm now kind of at a place where I feel like I just belong everywhere because I'm, but it's taken me like a long time. And, and the, the people in those, the people might not think I belong there, but I think it's like one's birthright to belong. You're born on earth. You belong in the earth. Like, you know, you're supposed, you're supposed to be there. Um, you are the way you are for, for, for a reason. Like it's not, it's not a mistake, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's me like, at this stage in my life, having thought and ridden and <laughs> over-intellectualized and done all of this stuff to, to kind of, to just, to just feel, yeah, to just kind of feel like I belong, you know, I, I think a, a yeah. feeling that probably other people just have far more automatically. Um, but certainly what you're describing with your husband sounds very relatable. Yeah. Can I ask one question about one change, just because it's sort of prompted by the book, one change that you made in your life? Um, I'm really curious, obviously people will need to read the book to kind of read a little bit about your childhood and your background and your sense of discomfort with Ireland as a place and also attachment to it. But your decision to leave when you were so young and go to the UK is a big decision for a young person to make and really scary. Um, Yeah. So what what kind of prompted making that decision and what made it worth it for you um so like i just felt really exhausted by um like being the black girl as i was like as as i was and all of the projections and assumptions and um it was exhausting, you know, for like, even people I just had never met, like Ireland then is like so different to Ireland now. Like the changes have been very, very rapid. I walk down the street in Dublin now, known bats an eyelid, obviously, do you know what I mean? Like it's quite ordinary to, to look like me. I, I can't tell you how far from the case that was when I was growing up. Um, so it was that like extreme alterity, but it wasn't just like a neutral difference. It was also, there were very negative stereotypes about black people that were very like potent. And I just had that, you know, projected onto me and it was like really exhausting. So it wasn't that I saw the UK as like some sort of like post-racial utopia. I just knew that there were other black people there. So like, as a result, I would be more ordinary, you know, I would just fit, fit, fit in more. Of course, I had a huge actual culture shock when I came here and I realized it was when I moved to the UK that I realized like how Irish I was, you know, because my Irishness was always um, called into question. Um, that made me feel quite uh, removed from it. But then when I actually left the country, I was like, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so Irish. There were so many things that I just thought were, um, just the way people were. And then I was like, no, that's not just the way people are. That's like a very particular Irish position or viewpoint or cultural norm, you know? And I came to realize how different that was to British people and English people, you know? Um, And that was 
quite a revelation as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the process of actually being like, um, comfortable, um, in kind of like claiming my Irishness, um, was a big transformation. I used to piss me off. Cause I'd be like, when people be like, Oh, you're not really Irish. And I'd just be like, you know, if I was going to pretend I was something, I wouldn't just, <laughs> wouldn't just pick Ireland. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> you picked something more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and so now, now I just realized that, um, I don't know. I, I think like, yeah, having like lived away for so long and realizing how many of my sensibilities like are very Irish. I, I just feel very like grounded in, in, in being Irish and very like, um, you know, like just very connected to Irishness. Mm-hmm. Um, it frustrates me sometimes when people over here are like, um, oh my God, like you're so kind of like into your Irish side. And I'm like, I'm fucking Irish. It's not my Irish <laughs> yeah. side. I'm Irish. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there any, uh, I, I have certain things in my own British home that are specifically Irish and that your I won't British tolerate. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, well, because it's over here. Yeah. So, but for example, I won't allow British butter into the house because I think it's like the representation of colonial evil. It just shatters to bits. It's white. has no salt in it, Emma. I don't know. Like, what are they doing? So I, Do you have any Irish things? Yeah, com- like completely. Like mine isn't so, mine is butter as well. Like I actually just, I only have Kerry girls, but it's not like, it's not official. It's also cheaper. <laughs> But it's about 50p cheaper. But that's not the reason. If it was 50p more expensive, I'd still I'd still make that choice. Yeah, like I would actually feel like I ha- I'd feel really unsettled if I bought another butter. If I had like a butter. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, but it's not that yeah, yeah, so definitely that. What else do I have? Um I know I only really listen to like I only really listen to Irish podcasts as well I notice I'm like oh that's really interesting yeah um I don't know I talk I talk a lot about Ireland to my kids um we used to go like until um lockdown um and that whole uh COVID thing like my elder son um I would go back to Ireland like a lot um and I'd bring him with me like really regularly um, so the baby's only been back once because of, because of COVID, but for my elder son, he's like just so familiar with Dublin because, um, I make sure that he's there like a lot and he's really into being Irish. In fact, I, I'm looking, I'm looking across my living room and there's a framed picture of his that he brought home from school on, um, in reception or maybe year one and it's Kilmainham jail. Um, <laughs> and he's there's a row of cells and he's written cells. And then next to that, there's like the graveyard. There's the, there's the graveyards. So there's like two kind of headstones and then there's the Irish flag flying. And he's done the place where all the revolutionaries got executed. And um, that he drew that in school <laughs> and I brought it home and framed it. That's an interesting young mind is what that is. <laughs> oh, um, well, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for giving me your time uh, to talk about butter and other less important things than butter. But, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed Thanks. it. Thanks for listening to Second Self. This podcast was edited by Billy Adamson and JJ Hadari. Music was written by Team.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.